This is the Alpaca Podcast for all things alpaca. If you're an owner, a soon-to-be owner, a want-to-be owner, or are just alpaca mad or love the fleece, welcome to the Alpaca Tribe. I'm Steve Hetherington. Hi, Steve here, and welcome to the podcast for alpaca people. So great to see you again. So what do we do with our fibre? We're turning our thoughts towards shearing, but what about the stuff that we take off? What do we actually do with it? Well, starting in May or June, whenever you shear them, our alpacas start to grow next year's crop for us. Alpacas produce fleece. Genetics, environment, feeding, and the health of the animals all impact and help create their amazing raw material. But like most things... It does not become the final product without a lot of preparation and hard work. There is a process to be followed. And which route you choose to follow opens up opportunities. There's a number of times we've looked at what we do with fleece, and there's some links in the episode notes. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Lynette Freidag, who is based in rural Kentucky in the United States. Have you ever had the experience of starting with what seemed to be a simple question that blossomed into all kinds of wonderful threads? Well, it was just like that as I talked with Lynette. Her history with alpacas is long and broad, including her involvement in the early days of the alpaca industry in the US and early imports of alpacas. Lynette has a passion for all kinds of fibre. She also has a clear sense of the challenge many of us face trying to build something on our farms that will help us become sustainable and even make a living. She faced the old chestnut of scaling up in a unique way as she went from wet felting to needle felting and even developing a machine to increase creativity and productivity. She looked for a machine, but there wasn't one. So set about developing it with the help of the University of Kentucky. More details about the felt loom and links to Lynette's website will be included in the episode notes. Go check them out. So welcome, Lynette. It's so good to have you on the on the podcast. And thank you for giving me some of your time. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure for sure. Tell me a bit about where you are. Uh, we are in Kentucky and uh, we have a, a little... A small farm in Kentucky, plus we have a small business and a little town in Kentucky. So we have two areas that uh, we work in with the uh, fibers and fabrics and the felt loom. Right. Excellent. Am I right in thinking that you had alpacas or have alpacas? Do you still have them or have you had them sometime in the past? Yes. I um, I had alpacas. I had actually llamas in 1987. And uh, then I got alpacas. I had llamas first. Llamas, wow. In 87, because there weren't even any alpacas in the U.S. at that time, except maybe in a zoo. I think Cincinnati Zoo had one. There's a few very early alpacas. And then I got alpacas um, in the early 90s. So, So I got them probably... Before most people even knew what they were, (laughs) 
and started working with them. And of course, to me, I worked with the llamas and the alpacas equally because I was under trying to understand the difference in the breeds and why, you know, why one would say the alpaca fiber is the best in the world. And they wouldn't say that about the llama, but to me, they were similar. There, there were better fibers on some of my llamas than some of my alpacas. So I was trying to sort it out in, in my experience of working with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a good, a good way to do it where you can move beyond the theory and you've got the, the, two, the two animals in front of you and you can learn from them. Right. And then also at, at the same time, everybody would say, well, alpaca is the best fiber in the world, but no one would tell me why. And so then I thought, well, this is interesting. I'm going to have to figure this out. So then I got many breeds of sheep and angora rabbits and angora goats, and I had them all on the farm, and I could try to understand the advantages of one over the other. So I had a lot of experience. And so in the meantime, I was breeding alpacas, um, was the primary breeding stock at the time on the farm, and uh, we we did a lot of work, and we started some of the initial uh, organizations in the U.S. for the alpacas, and we went to the initial shows that were put on and uh, tried to understand, you know, just how to get this wonderful fiber out there to the world and also to understand, you know, the needs of breeders and, you know, how to shear them properly. And at the time, no one in the States knew that. It had all been primarily done in Peru or Chile. It hadn't been done in in our country. So we tried to understand that. Wow. So you were written right early on in in the foundation of, of alpacas starting. Yes, I was. And so we worked with in this in the US worked with a fellow named uh, Tom Hunt and he was one of the original importers of the alpacas and so I worked with him early on and we actually partnered with him in the beginning stages of bringing some to the states so yes yeah, so I've I've been with it a very long time and I'm absolutely amazed and thrilled at what the industry has done because Back then, it was just like we knew the need, but we didn't know how it was going to happen. Mm, what an interesting journey! Wow, wow. So, um, tell me, how did you, when did you meet your first alpaca, and how did it make you feel? I told you we we were partnered with uh, Tom Hunt, and he was one of the original breeders or in, importers to the U.S. He got some and um, suggested that we work with these and. We had some females that we were trying to breed to his male that he thought was wonderful, and his name was Silversmith, if I can remember correctly. And um, we were just excited about seeing them, seeing the fiber. But, of course, today, if you see that fiber on Silversmith, you wouldn't claim as, claiming them as yours <laughs> because it was much coarser, you know, had much harder to work with than what we have today because the breeders today have – really worked at improving the fibers and the fiber quality. So we did that. And then we toured some of the alpaca ranches out West and we toured those and then brought more breeding stock to our farm. So, so, but when we first worked with them, 
they were wonderful. Of course, I had had llamas. So, you know, I, I had some expectations because I was, you know, they were camillids. So I thought, well, okay, how are they going to work? Um, and they did have their own personality differences than uh, the llamas did. Mm. And they were smaller for me, easier to be able to work with because I'm not a big person. And I thought, oh, wow, they're easier for me to just put a lead on them and feel safer leading them and working with them and and they had their each llama or each llama and each alpaca that I dealt with had their own personalities so you had to figure that out with the animal some were shy and wanted to stay away some were brave and wanted to come close and some would just be you know they would follow the others and but it was a great experience and then on our farm in Kentucky I believe we were the first ones to do ultrasound of the creas right or before birth you know cuz we before that we used to have to send off blood samples to see if they were a bred but we worked with a veterinarian in Kentucky um and he had worked with a big thoroughbreds in the horse industry and he was doing that with uh, thoroughbreds so he tried that technology on alpacas so at one time we had Dr. Murray Fowler one of the early veterinarians come and give a, a educational course to the vets in the U.S. at our farm in Kentucky. Yeah. So we did have an early on trying to teach people about the animals. Yeah. Oh, that sounds fascinating. It really does. So you you had a large passion for all kinds of fiber, right? Um, you were saying you bought sheep and and rabbits and and other things as well to explore all of those different things. And that. That was a, an unusual thing at the time? Yes, very unusual at the time. Um, but it was, it was a need because how do you get a great understanding about things if you don't experience it, right? Mm. To me, that was a need for my own personal gratification. I needed, a, I needed to understand just like you talked about the difference in the breeds of the alpacas to the llamas. Yeah, absolutely. There's also those difference in the breeds of the sheep, you know, in their personalities, in their fibers, in the way they respond to people and things. And so so I wanted to understand the whole gamut, not just the fiber, but the breeds and the way they reacted and and figure out what fit best for us. So... So it was an exciting journey. Yeah, it sounds good. Now, the the learning, the best way to do that is being around them and to spend time with them. And and I'm guessing that you were able to do that? Oh, yes. Yeah, we had them on the farm. And um, I spent time with them. I didn't spend as much time as um, some of the other people around ours, but I did – Back then, we had a little small business. This was my first husband. This is some of our history of my life, I guess. We had a business that he formulated diets for zoo animals. So so we somebody had to stay on the phone and take orders from the zoos in the U.S. But um, a lot of times they would put me on the phone because he was the one that, that wanted to be out more with the animals. So... It's amazing that you were involved in things so early on. Wow. But uh it's it's come a long way. 
So what was the later developments with the machines and felt loom? Is that that's more, much more recent, obviously. Uh, it was in the early nineties um, that we got the animals and, you know, we, we established our breeding stock. And then um, in early two thousands, we started a wool mill, the carting uh, mill on the farm where we got um, our little carting and picker and were able to make bats and work with fibers in a different way. And after we got the wool mill started to process all the fibers from the animals, the llamas, the alpacas, the sheep and everything, then uh, I had been a wet felter and I knew the need to be able to do this in a better way because for farms to be sustainable, you couldn't do traditional textiles because your time didn't even pay for the feed for the animals in the long run. So I knew we needed a bigger, um, more productive way to look at the fibers. So I went from spinning and knitting and crocheting to felting and felting seemed to be a little bit faster and more productive because I could make a hat in the afternoon, but that still didn't quite get to the point where your farm could be sustainable from your animals. And so the animals could um, be something that was a true value. So I thought, well, industry, you know, had had new technology and we needed it too. Industry changed from traditional textiles and new inventions were out there, but we didn't have that put in the hands of the people where people could make things on a small scale with industrial technology. I just knew that was important that we needed to get that done. So we started working with developing the felt loom in the early, I think, 2003. So it's been a lot of years on the journey to decide you need a machine to the, into the world where it's a proven concept and now can be sold around the world. That's that's really interesting the, the the way things developed. And I think that's right. The scaling up is the biggest challenge. Um, you can do things at a small scale, and it's very much just craft. But to do it on a larger scale, to be able to make money and su- survive as a farm, uh, is a real challenge. So you've you've got to move to something like like you developed. Right, and the original goal was to be able to take things and make them on the farm and sell them like at farmers markets and things like that to be or to to take them to boutiques and you know small scale we never had the goal of saying we're going to be a big huge industry because there wasn't enough of the fibers mm. to be able to do that in the world with a lot of, without a lot of increase in the breeding stocks right so anyway that's where we our original goal was to be like put things small scale for cottage industry in the hands of the people. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you develop the machines? Um, well, we started out uh, realizing the value of the needles and the needles, how they worked with the fibers and um, how they did it. I had one needle that I worked with and then with a one needle um, after I worked with it, and I knew that, it, you know, one needle was good, two had to be better, and four had to be better, and then 
eight. And so it just gradually became a thing where um, my husband and I were working with the needles and we realized the more we did by hand that the more we needed a machine. And then we looked to find a machine to buy and there was none to buy that we could find all over the world. Mm. So the kind of machine we wanted wasn't out there. So we knew if we were going to have it, we had to develop it. And so from that point, we worked with people to get a, a f initial prototype built. Right. To develop a machine to be able to stand up to the needles that you need to be able to penetrate the materials and the fibers that has to be very strong. So it had to go through a lot of analysis. And uh, we hired the University of Kentucky Center for Manufacturing to help us. Uh, do some of the CAD analysis so our metal was strong enough so that if we ran 700 needles, the metal didn't bow and, and things like It's pretty scary when we are developing the felt loom to watch that that metal bow. And um, uh, the guys just couldn't believe it when I ran stuff through and it did that. And so we had to make a strong bar of metal things. So it just took time to get the kinks out of it and to make it a strong machine that will last. And then we we got the patent in 2008. And then in um, 2010, we really started to work on manufacturing of them. And then that takes time, too, because, you know, we're small volume and you just can't go to a big factory and say, make this because they don't want to make <laughs> 10, you know, or five, or they want to make a thousand. And we had to figure out the, the players to make it on a smaller scale. So we did that. Yes. Lynette, thank you so much for your time and for explaining some of the history. I'm amazed just how far back uh, in the early days you you go. And thank you for explaining how you develop things. That's That's been fascinating. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's been truly my pleasure to share this, and uh, you might be the first one that have been recording some of this. So it's it's interesting, and uh, it's our honor, and we very much thank you for your time, too, to allow us to tell our story. Uh, you're welcome. So take care, and we'll, we'll see you again soon, hopefully. I really appreciated my conversation with Lynette with her experience spanning from starting with alpacas, exploring other fibres, and finding a solution to her problem, which also helps other people make their farms more sustainable. They're a pretty robust lot, these alpaca people, aren't they? And they tend to eventually find a solution that works for them. I hope you do too. We talked more about Lynette's background in computers, uh, programming in the days of punched cards and mainframes, and the felt loom development journey. It was too much to include here for now, so look out for a bonus episode coming soon. Thanks for being here, so appreciate it. And if you can, go spend some time with an alpaca. This is the Alpaca Tribe, and I'm Steve Hetherington. Have a great day.